part of the Press Play Podcast Network. Chapter 9. The History of the Laws of Voting Hey, hard to believe it's been a year since I got behind the mic for the first time, huh? And what a year it's been. An insane pandemic followed by an even more insane election that was unfortunately followed by some more insane pandemic. Add to that the deteriorating mental status of the collective American population and you're queued up for something horrible in the making. But for the most part, we survived. All I know is that survival looks different for a lot of people and sometimes that can just mean getting out of bed in the morning. I know for me, my mental health was definitely challenged this past year in a lot of ways. I feel as though in a crisis, you really start to see a person's character. I saw people do and say things I never thought those people would do or say. Even some of the people who are closest to me showed me their character. And despite how disturbing that was or is, I have to remember these are not normal times. One of the biggest things that happened was the presidential election. It was a literal flaming hot bag of Cheetos, and if I'm being honest, it still is. One thing I've always told myself is that I would always respect the office of the president. Now, that doesn't always mean the person who's in the Oval Office at the time, but the office of the president because it means something. The person occupying that office at any given time is carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, and from the burdens that I've carried in life, I can only imagine what the president is carrying around at any given moment. For those reasons, I will never actively root for the president to fail because if the president fails, we all fail. Now, that's not the same as criticizing actions or policies. You should definitely challenge all forms of authority whenever possible, at all times. Keep that tucked away in the back of your head. We'll come back to it at some point. As we prepare to enter this new phase of normal, a lot has changed. This season on the Hyman Podcast, we're going to dive into that. We're going to cross into areas that we may have touched on last season, and we're going to explore new avenues as well. We're going to continue the conversation on race, and we're going to roll that conversation into several topics, including voting, the biased media, the wealth gap, the Second Amendment, the best parts of society, and the worst. Stick around. It's going to be an incredible journey. From the Hyman blog and the Press Play Podcast Network, I'm J.D. Hyman. As a black man living here in America, I am living proof that while all men were created equal, not all men are equal. We're here to dig into the American political system, explore and unearth experiences from the human condition, and be a catalyst for some hard conversations that need to be had, conversations that demand to be had. No matter what brought you here, I'm glad you came. Once again, my name is JD, and this is The Hyman Podcast. Part one, who stole the presidency? I'm sure that sounds like a loaded question, but it's a legitimate question. Who stole the presidency? In November, 2020, 
We all met for what most considered to be an easy decision, what I viewed as the apocalypse unfolding and what some people tuned out completely. The American presidential election. Donald Trump was vying to maintain power. Joe and Kamala were poised to take it and Senate Republicans were fast tracking Amy Coney Barrett to the highest court in the land. And to add insult to injury, we were trying to hold a free and fair election in the midst of a global pandemic. Don't tell America she can't do something. She'll prove you wrong each and every time. Unlike traditional elections, wait, there was nothing traditional about this election. But unlike traditional elections where a winner is usually declared before we fall asleep on election night, Joe Biden wouldn't be officially declared the winner of the election until November 20th, a full 13 days after the actual election. At least six states had to recount ballots by hand because the winning margins were so close. Then, after all the recounts, lawsuits, state hearings, it was finally decided and declared that Joe Biden had won the election fair and square. But doubts as to the legitimacy of the vote still plagued every news cycle. Were votes mishandled? Had deceased people voted? Did some votes get counted twice? Were some votes discarded? It was a mess. The left celebrated, the right cried foul, but the still in office president decided he was going to stand his ground. The left had cheated, and that's all there was to it. In the face of mounting pressure by both sides to surrender, President Trump had one message for the world. I won. The mainstream media, which consists of a majority of left-leaning outlets, had to do what they couldn't do for Hillary. They had to rally. And so was coined the phrase, the big lie. Now, personally, I came across some pretty compelling evidence that would call into question the legitimacy of some of the votes, but as a researcher, we're taught to defer to the preponderance of the evidence. And in this case, nobody knows. It was a mess. The problem was this was a big election. Every seat in the House was up for grabs, and so were 35 seats in the Senate. And these were close elections, and the more elections were called, the more the narrative began to take shape. Some senators on the right felt as though they had to distance themselves from Donald Trump in order to secure their own victories, and in doing so, his stronghold on the Oval Office began to fade. There were large sectors of the electorate that were holding out for a miracle, and the closer we got to the inauguration of the president-elect, the more unstable the situation became. And it became so unstable that on January 6, 2021, the day Congress was busy counting and certifying the electoral votes, tragedy struck. A large number of protesters had gathered in Washington, D.C. to protest the certification of the Electoral College and to sway then-Vice President Mike Pence to exercise his power to overturn the election results and secure Donald Trump another term in office. The protesters made their way to the Capitol complex, and at 12.53 p.m. Eastern Time, they breached the Capitol Police perimeters. Well... I guess I can't call it a breach since, according to video footage, they were kind of let inside. But when you're dealing with a mob of people, all bets are off. The insurrectionist, as they would become to be called, stormed the Capitol and for approximately eight hours, they wreaked havoc inside the Capitol. 
They ransacked offices, destroyed furniture, rooted through and stole documents, lecterns, art, laptop computers, and hard drives. The Secret Service hastily evacuated the vice president, but many of the congressmen and women were left to fend for themselves. Securing themselves in offices and closets, they hid until the protesters left the premises. Aware of the severity of the situation or not, while this was happening, Donald Trump and some of his allies were placing calls to Republican lawmakers demanding that they slow down the certification as much as humanly possible. They did not. Now, at this point, the timeline is a little choppy, and we're left to rely on the timestamps of tweets to understand exactly what happened, but we'll piece it together as best we can. Several hours after the events, which resulted in five people dying, 138 police being injured, 15 of whom were hospitalized, an unknown number of injured rioters, and millions of dollars in damages and repairs, the Congress reconvened and certified the election. Then, on January 13, 2021, one week prior to Joe Biden's inauguration, President Trump was impeached for a second time. According to the mainstream media, this was completely unlike anything that had happened in recent American history. Democracy was at risk and the world was going to end. This was the most horrendous thing that had ever happened. It dominated the news cycles for literal months. At the time of this recording, nearly nine months after those events, it's still a segment or two on all the cable news stations. I'll admit, it was pretty crazy. People storming the Capitol? It was definitely newsworthy, but it was the events that took place in response to this, which is why we're all here today. We were about to key ourselves up for an even bigger mess. This was supposedly an example of what happens when the laws of voting aren't regulated on the federal level. We needed to do something, and quickly, to make sure this never happened again. At this point, two things happened. The right now had to make sure that the people who came out in droves to support the removal of the president never stepped foot in another voting booth, and how that would be accomplished is a tale as old as time. It was also important for the left to demonize these events. It was important for them to refer to these people as insurrectionists and this event as an insurrection. Why? Because if we turn our attention to the text of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Basically, if you ever swore an oath to defend the Constitution and then caused or took part in an insurrection, you would be prohibited from ever being elected to anything ever again. Hmm. I guess if you're desperate enough, you'll do just about anything to make sure your opponent doesn't win. You see, there's more than one way to disenfranchise a voter. There's more than one way to hold on to power. 
The left will have you believe that the right are the sworn enemy, that they will try to convince you that they are looking out for your best interests. But as far as I can tell, both sides of the political spectrum, politicians and media alike are as crooked as scoliosis. But more on that after the break. Hello, Brooks here with the Books with Brooks monthly book club podcast. We read one book a month and then we talk about it. Books like Stephen King's The Shining or Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. If you're on the hunt for book recommendations and enjoy sparkling conversation, come read along with us and then listen in. Want to hear more about your favorite TV shows and movies that are on countless streaming services? Then listen to Up Next with your new favorite hosts, me, Kristen Aviles. And me, Christina Walter. Every other week, we'll highlight one genre, but two movies or TV shows, one old and one new. We'll let you know what's hot and what's not from your favorite or least favorite streaming services. And be sure to stay tuned to the end of each episode where we shout out an artist whose name you should know for their talent in the industry. So follow us to stay up to date with your favorite hosts from Up Next, a part of the Press Play Podcast Network. Hey, it's JD with the Hyman Podcast. I wanted to let you know that the Hyman Podcast is currently seeking sponsors. If your business or brand are interested in partnering, reach out to me at podcast at jdhyman.com. Thanks. Now, let's get back to the show. Part two, Into the Belly of the Beast. For some time now, I'm sure to some degree or another, you've heard words associated with or closely related to voter suppression. So what exactly is voter suppression? Is it real? And if it is real, who does it affect? From the nomenclature, voter suppression is an active engagement of members of one political party and activities designed to prevent or mitigate voter turnout from members of the opposing party. History tells us that members of certain communities tend to vote certain ways. So how do you ensure your party remains in power? You institute certain practices to make it harder for other people to cast their ballot. Sometimes this is done by moving polling locations to places where it would be harder for certain people to have access to the polls. Other ways include prescribing stringent rules and regulations that not all people are able to meet. It could also look like reducing the number of available polling machines. What happens when you have limited numbers of polling machines? Who wants to wait in an hour's long line? No one. Many people, including myself, believe that the best way you can use your voice is by expressing and exercising your right to vote. In the wake of the debacle that was the 2020 election, many lawmakers decided that the best way to ensure the integrity of the American election system is to institute stricter voting laws. One of the most popular voting laws that has certainly made its way around the circuit are voter ID laws. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, so let's dig in it for a bit. On both sides of the fence, you have pretty strong arguments, albeit some stronger than others. Now, it's no surprise that members of the Republican Party want stronger ID laws. One would argue that they believe that voter fraud is most rampant in terms of ineligible voters showing up at the voting booth. People opposing this theorem would argue that not every eligible voter is able to get a government-issued ID. But it certainly didn't begin here. This was just one method in a long and storied history of voter suppression. 
With the ratification of the 15th Amendment, some states had to get creative and enacted four very effective methods of voter suppression. Grandfather clauses, white primaries, literacy tests, and racial gerrymandering. You may have heard the term used colloquially in one fashion or another, but most are familiar with this term regarding their cell phone plans. Being grandfathered into your current cell phone plans means even if your cell phone provider decides to completely overhaul the structure of all their plans, you can keep your current plan as long as you don't make any major changes to it. You can remain grandfathered into your existing plan. Well, that term originated in the wake of the passage of the 15th Amendment. Now, the 15th Amendment, which states that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. It didn't explicitly guarantee one's ability to vote. It guaranteed that those factors couldn't be used to directly restrict you from voting. But this amendment also gave states the right to dictate their own voting law, so long as they didn't violate this amendment. Like, that was a good idea. Anyways, so what did some states do? Well, Democrats in Mississippi led the charge. They basically said, anyone can vote so long as their grandfather was eligible to vote before the American Civil War. Let me help put things in context. The 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870. The Civil War lasted from 1861 to 1865. So here we are in 1891, and the basis for one's ability to vote was based on your grandfather's ability to vote nearly 30 years prior, and the eligible black voters in Mississippi shrinks from over 90% to well under 6%. And if that wasn't enough, some states were like, yeah, primaries aren't really elections, they're just contests, so white folks only. It had been well known that if you won South Carolina, you were sure to win the White House. So states like South Carolina, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Georgia all joined on the bandwagon. This lasted until 1944, when the Supreme Court ruled that this practice was wholly unconstitutional. And if that wasn't enough, how about instituting literacy tests and poll taxes? all tactics to reduce the black vote. And when these methods failed, they turned to others. What if you could surgically remove the black voters? States began a process of redrawing district boundaries as an effort to marginalize voters even more. But these measures continue to fail again and again and again. The 24th Amendment outlawed poll taxes and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 outlawed other measures, and then the 26th Amendment guaranteed the right to vote to anyone over the age of 18. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was a big win. But then, in the 2013 Shelby County versus Holder decision, the U.S. Supreme Court gutted key provisions from the Voting Rights Act. Chief among them, states were once again allowed to oversee voting at their own discretion. And what was the first thing states began to do? That's right, voter ID laws. Today, voter disenfranchisement continues. And while research has shown us that more than 21 million people are disenfranchised by voter suppression, the argument that some of these measures are to root out fraud 
are not very convincing, especially when you consider that one court found two cases of fraud out of 20 million votes cast. Yes, you heard me correctly. Two out of 20 million, but by all means, continue this crusade. Go into any heavily African-American community and you'll find broken voting machines, a lack of voting machines, longer lines, obscene wait times, fewer polling places, stricter regulations to works. It debases our democratic process. It undermines everything we work towards and it creates a culture of dissension whereby the people don't trust their own government. For now, we have to continue to make noise. We have to continue to shine a light on this problem and the people who encourage, perpetuate, and contribute to this problem. Find the people who stand to gain the most from this injustice and therein you'll find some solutions. We have to do better because to do otherwise, well, that simply is not an option. My name is JD Hyman and this is the Hyman Podcast. I'll see you next time. The Hyman Podcast was written, edited, and produced by myself. Share with guests Whitney Hall and Mary Louise Layton co-produced and research. Cover art and branding by Kevin Aki. The theme music was composed and produced by Jim Yosef with additional music license from Epidemic Sound. The Hyman Podcast is a production of the Press Play Podcast Network. Press Play is staffed by Chase Smith, our CEO and fearless leader. I serve as Chief Operating Officer, and Brooks May is a Chief Creative Officer. To learn more about the network, sponsorships, guest appearances, or if you're interested in launching your own podcast on our network, visit us on the web at www.pressplaypodcast.com. To learn more about this podcast, our mission and vision, or for sponsorship information, please visit us on the web at www.jdhyman.com.